Revived Thoughts is a production of Revive Studios. This is Troy and Joel, and you're listening to Revive Thoughts. Those who have been examples in sinning and in drawing others to sin must become examples in repenting and reforming and turning to God. Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history in a sermon that they delivered. Today, we're going to London in the year, well, we believe it's 1681 that this sermon was preached. It was published in the year 1690, and so we know that for sure. Uh, in England, we're going to listen to a sermon by John O., or as I like to call him, John O. Like, that's in my head when I when I see John O. He's John O. I had... <laughs> You know, his nickname, huh? Yeah. You, you and you and what well, most of us, you know, Mr. Owen, you're you're kind of on like a friendly terms. John, John, o. Hey, John o. It's fun to say. <laughs> it's actually surprising to me that we are almost four years in and we've actually not ever covered John Owen on the show before. Like we've talked about his friends. We really we've never talked about, co- talked about him John in Owen. relationship. No, this is our first time. Ever. And it's not like personal. It wasn't like, uh, you know, after after what he said in that one book, I'm not having him on my show. It's It was merely just. You know, you got to cover a lot of people in church history, and sometimes it takes you a while to get to certain people. So, uh, no, it was nothing personal. Uh, Joel, we have received multiple shout-outs on Twitter and YouTube, uh, but the one I wanted to hone in on actually came to us from Patreon. I wanted to read this comment we got from Patreon. Uh, it was really heartfelt. The person didn't actually get, you know, we didn't ask permission for this. I'm not, you know, giving their name or anything, but I just wanted to read it to you. I just want to let you know that I listened to your episode on George Mueller, Trust in the Lord, and has really spoken to me. I've been a believer for my whole life, but I certainly wandered off the path of peace in the past few years. Thank you for reconnecting me with the truth of just trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he, he will make your path straight. It is such a confirmation of what I've been walking towards in this season. I feel like I'm having a conversion experience, though it was probably better described as a revival experience. I'm so grateful. You had a part in the producing this episode, so I just wanted to express my thankfulness. God is using your ministry to speak to my heart. Thank you so much for sending that in. We always are incredibly amazed that God uses uh, Revive Thoughts and, and our, our sister show, Martyrs and Missionaries, to uh, just reach out to different people and how the Lord is taking you know 500-year-old sermons, 200-year-old sermons, and uh, using them in people's life, again, it's just incredible to be able to be a part of that. We're really grateful that we get to do that. John Owen is going to be preaching a subject, but the time the time of when it's preached is actually really, really important. Now, he's preaching this in the 1680s, and we have a deep dive that we worked on. It took me a very long time to put together. It is another classic case of I had a small idea, and I went off with it, and it went over, over the place. But I discovered... We're going to discover, at least I, I, I found an incredible story in church history that's really never been told, or at least I know I'm going to say, I don't know that anybody's really told it like this before. It is the new deep dive that is now out and is actually unintentionally connected directly to this episode. We didn't know. I did not know this sermon when I created this episode. I wish I did because I would have included it in that deep dive I was doing. But in this sermon, you're going to hear John Owen's going to mention certain events. He's going to talk about the fire. He's going to talk about the the Catholic takeover. He's going to talk about some things that are happening in England, and you might not know what those things are, but if you go and sign up on Patreon, you can know what those things are by listening to that deep dive. Uh, You can still enjoy the sermon. You can still enjoy this episode on John Owen without knowing what those things are, but who doesn't want to know what he's talking about? Who doesn't want to know about the fire? 
who doesn't want to know about these things. And so I highly encourage you go sign up and listen to it. It's an incredible episode. And it had a humongous impact on the people living in London at that time. And those people living in London at that time went and had a gigantic impact on the entire world. So if you don't understand how that fire and how these things and how the Black Plague and all these things that hit London in that moment transpired, then it it leaves a piece of world history and understanding the way the world uh, kind of unfolded after that out for you. And it, it really does add a lot of details that you need to know. Plus, it is just a wild and incredible story. So we highly encourage you to go check that out. And some of the things mentioned in the sermon are going to connect back to that. Yeah, it, it is kind of fascinating. Just And that's part of kind of the, the spirit of Revive Thoughts is understanding the context around these sermons. Like if you just pluck any of these sermons, and that's why we do these intros at the beginning is because we want to get your mind in the set to understand what was going on in the world. What was their circumstances like when these sermons were preached? Uh, and that's the, that's the history side of things that fascinate us. We just un- like to understand how all these things are interwoven and, and play together. Uh, deep dive on the London fire out now for patrons. It'll eventually come out to the, the main feed. Uh, so if you're happy and content, but you're missing out, you're, you're, you know, <laughs> you're when you're out. at the dinner party and your friends are talking about the London fire, 1666, like they always are, you're going to be a little <laughs> behind my man. So I, I appreciate go sign up so you can be right there at the cutting edge of that conversation. Oh boy. <laughs> okay. John Owen born in England in the year 1616. Now, uh, if you hear England in the 1600s and you know anything about church history or history in general, you know that England is losing its mind around this around this era there's civil wars there's uh political coups there's all types of craziness going on uh religious persecution it is a very confusing place to live uh in the 15 and 1600s john owen we don't know much about his childhood as we you know rarely do about these these people from these eras but uh we do know that he is a classic case of child prodigy child genius this man uh, was brilliant. At the age of 12, he had already outgrown what they called, quote, his personal tutor, and uh, he was admitted to college. And at college, at the age of 12, uh, was revered as a prodigy there. He studied all the usual subjects and, and took up music as well, music, a, little bit, a little bit of music prodigy. Right? You know, if we're, if we're going to make him a genius, you get, he's a genius in all things. you got to make him a genius in all things. It was said that he slept four hours a night uh, because he was so busy with all of his studies. Originally, he wanted to be a, a great, powerful leader in the Church of England. But as he continued to study and continued to grow closer to Christ, uh, he realized that he ended up agreeing a little bit more with what the Puritans were doing more than what the Anglicans were doing. And it seems like the spirit was genuinely moving in him and and calling him to serve with God fully. And so he had to make a decision to stay the course uh, at the university he was at and and achieve that stature of greatness, you know, that great name in in the church, uh, or to go with the Puritans where he would uh, certainly be kicked out of the college he was at, the university. He chose to go with the Puritans, and his academic career kind of comes to an end there, uh, and which is kind of different. You know, we're so used to this childhood prodigy, right? Grows up, writes a bunch of books, very famous. And in this case, it didn't look like it was going to happen to John Owen. He looked like he was kind of done. He was going to move on from there. Now, he did get a job as a personal tutor, so he's not completely without hope. But his his academic career that he thought he was on definitely changed. Now, at this point, 
Owen still didn't consider himself saved. And even though he'd left his career behind for what he thought was true, his salvation moment actually happens later. He was going to listen to a celebrity preacher that was kind of coming to town, uh, but the celebrity preacher didn't end up making it. And so an unknown man got up and preached, why are you afraid, oh, you of little faith, and just preached a whole sermon on it. And from that moment on, Owen was a different man. And he called later on, he called him later on, we would tell the story back. He'd say, man, that guy was an angel of God who was sent to show me the light on that day. What's really interesting to me is just a history kind of parallel here. Charles Spurgeon was similarly, uh, came to Christ in a similar way. He was supposed to go to church one day. Snowstorm brought him to a different church where a guy who wasn't the main pastor, the pastor couldn't get in from the snow, gets up and preaches a sermon and it brings uh, Spurgeon to Christ. Just all those things coming together. So what I, what I was reminded of when I heard the story, I was like, wow, that's two great men now who can trace their salvation moment back to somebody faithfully stepping up and just going, well, I'm not the guy you're supposed to go, but I'm going to go for it anyway. Now, he soon had a church to pastor and a wife that he was married to, and they had 11 children together. Uh, she was considered to be an affectionate, wonderful woman. They should have had a happy life. However, they had actually quite a tragic family life because all but one of the 11 children that they had together died very early on in their young uh, childhood years. Owen himself would eventually outlive uh, all 11 of his children by the end of his life and his wife as well. Uh, you can only imagine what the impact something like that has on your walk with God where you know, you've know you seen 11 of your children die and your wife as well. Uh, and yet he, he never seems to show any signs that this strains his relationship with God or breaks him spiritually. As I, I feel like without the grace of God, that certainly would do to me. It's very common in a lot of these guys. I think George Mueller had a very similar situation as well where he outlived his wife and his four children and then he married again and outlived her as well. It, it's something that's not uncommon and yet it's also so uh, difficult to imagine yourself living through. Yeah, something else that has a big impact on your life is uh, war. You know, uh, 1639, English Civil War happens. That runs for like 12 years or so. Owens sided with Parliament, which is the, the Puritan Protestant side of what is going on in England during this time. The English Civil War is quite the recurring character on revive thoughts i feel like it pops up and it most because it because it, it impacted the world during this era it's hard to uh, talk about the lives of anyone without them having to navigate a very confused <laughs> for for us looking back on it oh boy is it uh, is confusing and you'll notice in most episodes we'll often skirt around the details of the european civil war <laughs> uh, because or the english civil war rather because uh, it it is very confusing, and you know while you might be able to is uh, understand in isolation what a specific conflict was about, um, the way they play into each other over the course of like fifty years gets gets pretty jumbled up. So Owens sides with with the Parliament side of this English Civil War, uh, which was not a popular opinion for him and his background. His uncle was actually a really rich royalist uh, who who John Owen had inheritance coming to him from this rich uncle, uh, and he was cut out of the will uh, because of this decision that he made to side with Parliament. So he's given up riches because of what he feels is right. He's siding, he's giving up um, you know, earthly treasures um, to be with what is right. And for a time, this Puritan Protestant Parliament side of this civil war of england would end up winning this these sets of initial battles and work on establishing a new government owens became 
are pretty popular amongst this side of the English Civil War, and he was actually asked to speak at Parliament, and when he was speaking, the leader of that side of the Civil War, Cromwell, liked what Owen said so much that he invited him to be the army's lead chaplain. And uh, Owens at first rejected this. He liked his job as a pastor, but eventually, you know, he thought that he might be able to do some good there. So he agreed and began teaching soldiers out on the field. And he was strict. You know, he he had a, a formula for his soldiers uh, demanding that they read Psalms and partake in Bible studies and spend time in their scriptures each day. And he became really well respected, and uh, people seemed to really appreciate him in his station there. Eventually, he uh, would leave that to go back to doing what he was doing before to his pastor job. However, that that whole chaplain life and stuff also just it was not for him. Cromwell eventually gets uh, Cromwell being in charge of the country is also in charge of University of Oxford now, and he appointed Owen to basically run it as his vice chancellor. Owen, who had to leave school because of his beliefs, now 15 or so years later, and maybe a little bit longer, a little shorter, is now running uh, Oxford, basically. So kind of a kind of a comeback kid story there. Oxford was on the brink of collapse from the Civil War. I mean, when you're running a war that involves the entire country, you don't have uh, a lot of people going to school and things like that. Things are getting kind of crazy. Over 10 years, he helped rescue the school, kind of encourage a spirit of tolerance for unity for Christians. They're kind of showing the way of how can we come together and not, uh, you know, bury our differences a little bit. You know, there are stories between him working things out with Episcopalians and, and other groups that, he, you know, I don't agree with you, but we've got to figure out how we can work together. Now, that did not extend to Catholicism. I, Owen has very firm beliefs on what he thought about the Catholic Church, but he certainly wanted unity with other Christian groups where he could find it. He was eventually removed from the post, though, when the King of England took back over in the early 1660s. Now, another aspect of Owen that was prominent at this time was his writing and his theology. He wrote 8 million words that were published, and he wrote many famous books, uh, The Death of Death in Jesus Christ. I've read that one. Uh, the Mortification of Sin, uh, Temptation, and many, many, too many books really to list. It would just be a, an entire episode of us listing books he's written. Often called the Prince of Puritans and considered one of the foremost theologians of that era. If you want to understand Puritans, you need to be reading Owen. Uh, there, There's too much here to cover and we to get into the scope of all that theology data did, but to know that the, the guy definitely wrote a lot and had a huge impact on theology and the way people were viewing Christ, the Trinity, all these things were shaped and reflected uh, by his books, by his uh, sermons, and by what he was teaching during that time. It was it was a nice little pocket for Protestantism, uh, for you know, yeah, what was going on there. And I'm glad they had it because they were able to establish a lot of things that they probably wouldn't have been able to establish later. Um, but again, this era is very turmoil. Turmoil is that the right word? Tumultuous. Tumultuous. Yeah, Cromwell. That uh, again was uh, responsible for putting a lot of these situations into place. Uh, helped win the English Civil War that was going on there. Uh, you know that that whole reign was very short lived. Once Cromwell was no longer running the show, King Charles II came in, and uh, oh boy, yeah, King Charles II not. Not a not a good time to be a Puritan. Not a good time 
um, to be really in England at that time. So once again, this this era of the 1600s in England, it's hard to keep track of because it does push and swing and uh, there's a lot of things going on at the time. But and, and John Owens is living through all of this. He's living through, oh, wow, look at all the ways my country is building and, and establishing these great systems in place for, you know, to, to worship God and to praise God. And then, you know, 10, 15, 20 years later, um, you're on the run for your life again, you know, like, like you're going through these cycles, which, uh, seems very stressful and very terrifying, uh, to live. It's something that is such a foreign concept to, especially us as, as Americans that have it pretty, pretty steady, all things considered. Um, so yeah, King Charles II in place and, and Puritans are going to jail and even being killed. And John Owens, while he uh, avoids jail, he is helping people that are in jail best he can. He's supporting them in, in what they're doing. He's he's trying to keep the Puritan movement alive. Uh, John Bunyan, writer of Pilgrim's Progress, uh, is in jail near him at this time. And Owens regularly visits him and actually helps him publish his book. So in some ways, we owe our, our uh, Pilgrim's Progress publication to John Owens, he was largely just very supportive of what the Puritans were doing and really felt for their suffering at the hand of, of this persecution. Uh, as Troy mentioned at the top of the show, he lives through the great London fire of 1666. And while the city burnt to the ground, he set up a place for people to come and worship and mourn and spend time together. There are many things that he did during his lifetime. And, and this sermon was given towards the end of his life when he was deeply concerned about the Catholics taking back over the country. So listen to see you know, what an old John Owens, looking back at his life, you know, sharing his concerns, what is he saying that the people needed to be looking out for? Israel has not been forsaken, nor Judah of his God, of the Lord of hosts, though their land was filled with sin against the Holy One of Israel. Jeremiah chapter 51 verse 5. This chapter and the previous one are an eminent prophecy and prediction of the destruction of Babylon and of the land of the Chaldeans, of the metropolitan city of the empire, and of the nation itself. There are two things that are significant by adding these words. The first is to declare the grounds and reasons why God would bring that destruction upon Babylon and upon the land of the Chaldeans. The words of verse 4 are, The slain will fall in the land of the Chaldeans, and they that are thrust through in her streets. Why? For, he says, Israel has not been forsaken. The reason why God will destroy the empire of Babylon is because he will remember Israel and what they have done against him. This lies in store for another Babylon in God's appointed time. The second reason is so that it may be for the comfort and for the support of Israel and Judah, who had been under distress since they had entered Babylon. Despite it all, he says, Israel is not forsaken, nor Judah of his God. We are called this day to join our cries with the nation on behalf of our own homeland. And you know that usually I would speak about our own particular sins, our own decays, our own means of recovery. But on this occasion, I will, as God helps me, represent the state of the nation which we live in, and the only way and means for our deliverance from universal destruction. To declare our interest in this passage, some things must be noted concerning this Babylon, whose destruction is so solemnly prophesied of in this and the previous chapter. 
and I must state three things concerning it. First, that Babylon is the origin of apostasy from the natural worship of God to idolatry as seen in the whole world. There was great iniquity before the flood, but there was no mention of any idolatry. There was a natural worship of God throughout the world that was not corrupted with idolatry. There is no mention of it until the building of Babel. There it began. The tower which they built turned into a temple of Belus, as Herodotus tells us, whom they had made a god, and laid his image on the top of it. There is its origin. You see how immediately this is significant. This is the origin of apostasy from natural worship to idolatry. Secondly, their idolatry. The idolatry that began there consisted in image worship, which is the worshiping of carved images. Four times in this prophecy does God say he will take vengeance on their graven images. And from Isaiah chapter 40 to the end, you have a description of the idolatry of Babylon, that it all consisted in making carved idols and carved images. The rest of the world, especially of the eastern nations, fell into the worshiping of the sun, which they called Baal and Moloch and Chemosh, all names for the sun, and the worship of the moon, which they called Ashtaroth and the queen of heaven. But the idolatry of Babylon was marked by its carved images and idols. Thirdly, they were, as far as it appears upon record, the first country in the world that ever persecuted for religious reasons. The first that oppressed the true worshippers of God, just for being worshippers of God. As being mad upon their idols, as the prophet says they were, they were driven by passions for them. They were the first that oppressed the church because of its worship of God, and destroyed that worship among them. And so the church prays in this chapter, The vengeance of the Lord and of his temple be upon Babylon. Not only the vengeance of the Lord for destroying his people, but the vengeance of his temple for destroying his worship is upon Babylon. Will Zion say, Others have afflicted me, he says in the same chapter, but this Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has broken my bones. They were the great oppressors of the church. Upon these three accounts, which is what I have observed, the name of Babylon and all that is spoken of it in the Old Testament is transferred to the apostate church of Rome in the New. And all of it applies in the book of Revelation. And that upon this great analogy, which I will now briefly show. Why does God call the apostate state of the church under the New Testament Babylon, Babylon, the mystery? For these three reasons. First, as old Babylon was the rise and spring of apostasy from natural worship in the world to idolatry, so this new Babylon was the rise and spring of apostasy from evangelical worship in the world to idolatry. Mark the analogy. Here she is called the mother of harlots. That is, she gave birth to all the idolatrous churches and worship that was in the world. Did Babylon begin to apostatize into idolatry from natural worship? So Rome began to apostatize into idolatry from spiritual, evangelical worship. Therefore, the Holy Ghost calls her Babylon. Secondly, the peculiar idolatry of Babylon consisted in image worship. The worshiping of men departed under images made to their likeness. And the peculiar idolatry of Rome consists in image worship, the worshiping of saints departed, which is a great part of their idolatry. And so again, they are like Babylon also. Thirdly, as Babylon was the spring of all persecution against and oppression of the Church of God under the Old Testament, so Rome has been the spring of persecution and oppression of the Church of God since its apostasy under the New Testament. On these accounts has the Holy Ghost, in infinite wisdom, 
transferred over the name and state and other things spoken of Babylon from the old to the new. I have mentioned this, that you may see the interest of England in this text of Scripture. The religion is alive in this country as far as it will give testimony against the idolatry of this world. We are to God as Israel and Judah, though the land is filled with sin. At the time of this prophecy, Israel and Judah were in danger of present destruction and desolation from the old Babylon. Those of us who do not mock God are under fear that England, and the Church of God in England, is in danger of the same desolation and destruction for this new Babylon, for the same reasons the old one fell. If we do not mock God, we profess this fear on this day. For the parallel runs equal between England today and Babylon. As was Babylon of old, so is England at present. As was the danger of Israel and Judah from them at that day, so is the danger of England from the threat of the new Babylon at present. For the opening words, observe these three things. First, we see there is a replication of the names or titles of God. He is in this verse called by the name of the Lord of hosts and by the name of the Holy One of Israel. Where there are such redundancies of the name of God or any of his titles, the Holy Ghost would have us take notice that it is a matter of great importance when he speaks. Secondly, there is an application of these names of God to distinct situations suitable for them. There is in it mentioned reference to an ambush with protection or deliverance from it. Who will do it? The Lord of hosts, he says, the Lord his God. And he does not waste his words when he adds immediately after, the Lord of hosts. That title of God, he who has the army above and the army below in his sovereign control. God's hosts above are all the holy angels and all the heavenly bodies and their influences. And he is the Lord of hosts here below, of all men and of all creatures, using them as it seemed good to him. The other title of God is the Holy One of Israel. This is applied specifically to their sin. The land is filled with sin against the Holy One of Israel. It is the greatest, it is the highest irritation of their sin, that it was against the holiness of God, who is a God of purer eyes than to behold sin. And so, the wisdom of the Holy Ghost applied these two distinct titles of God to the two distinct considerations of the people. First, of their protection, that he is the Lord of hosts. Secondly, as to their sin, he is the Holy One of Israel. Thirdly, The third thing is this, that in this woeful state there is the notion made of a covenant interest of Judah by God, and that God did still own them as in his covenant. Israel has not been forsaken, nor Judah of his God. Brothers, no man, I think, has less faith than I. No man despairs more than me. But if I could keep these two things together, his God and the Lord of hosts, then there is ground for any man's faith to build upon. His God, the Lord of hosts. Nothing but sovereign grace and sovereign power can preserve a people. I will speak a little more specifically. You may consider these words. The state of the people at this time. Their land was filled with sin against the Holy One of Israel. 2. There is a notion of approaching righteous destruction due to this line, through the land. It is in this condition that it should expect nothing but destruction. A strange and wonderful surprise, despite this sin, in sovereign grace and power. Israel has not been forsaken, nor Judah of his God, the Lord of hosts. What I will say is this. When a land is filled with sin against the Lord, the land is in danger of complete and utter destruction. They cannot be saved but by the hand of sovereign grace and power. 
I do believe that I am not lost in my thinking when I apply this to us today. I don't believe I am too lost in my thinking when I say that it is the case of the nation of England today. There are a few ways that a land may be said to be filled with sin. When the sins of a land or nation is full to the point that God has allowed them in his patience, there is an allowance of patience to every nation under heaven. And when it comes to its appointed time, no means under heaven can defer or delay their destruction on that day. So says God before the flood, the land is filled with sin, the whole earth with violence, a flood will take them away. The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah rose up to God. They had filled up their measure. God sent fire and brimstone to destroy them. You will not yet go into Canaan. Why couldn't they go to Canaan? The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. There is a time appointed when the sin of the Amorites would be full, beyond which their destruction should not be delayed. This was not now the case of Israel and Judah. It proved afterward to be their case, as the apostle describes it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 15-16, through 16, who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, and have persecuted us. And they do not please God, and are against all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles, that they might be saved, so as to fill up their sins always, for the wrath comes upon them fully. How come? They have filled their measure, reached the boundary line of God's patience. Wrath has come upon them fully. I hope, I pray that this is not, that this may not be the state of England, that our land is not so filled with sin that God's decree of absolute and universal desolation should go out against us. A land may be said to be filled with sin when it has reached the point that God will not pass it by without some severe, desolating judgment. It may not be time to completely forsake or destroy it, but when man becomes fully free to do what humanity desires, he will not pass by without some severe, desolating judgment. You see it in Second Chronicles chapter 36, verse 16. But they mocked the messengers of God and despised his words and abused his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people till there was no remedy. It was impossible that the judgment of God should be turned away from them. In this state, God says, Do not pray for these people. My heart will not be toward them until he had brought his judgment upon them. Though Moses and Samuel stood before me, I will not hear them. Aye, but what if reformation comes in? Nay, nay, says he, it is determined against them. Reformation will not save them. See Second Kings chapter 23, verses 25 through 26, where there is an account given of the greatest reformation that ever was made in Judah by Josiah. So it is said, Neither before nor after Josiah was there a king like him who turned to the Lord as he did, with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his strength, in accordance with all the law of Moses. Having reformed the whole nation, now it will all be well. See the next words. Nevertheless, the Lord did not turn from the fierceness of his great wrath, for his anger was kindled against Judah. And the Lord said, I will remove Judah out of my sight. There is a time and season when God, although he will not utterly destroy and forsake a nation forever, yet he will not pass by until he has brought a severe, destructive scourge upon them. Whether this is the state of England at this time or not, God only knows. No man can truly know. Whether we have arrived at that place where there is no remedy, and nothing we do will prevent his desolating judgments falling on us, I say, God only knows. Judgment is deserved and there is nothing left but to look upon the balance as it is held in the hand of sovereignty. Which way it will turn, only God knows. The decree has not yet gone out. 
In your state, God does not say, do not pray for these people. God does not say, though you reform, I will not turn from the fierceness of my wrath. But God says, who knows if God will return and leave a blessing? Who knows if God will be entreated and have mercy? He leaves it upon the absolute pleasure of his sovereignty to give us encouragement to wait upon him. Now, if God gives time and space, there is encouragement left to make our applications to him for the removal of his impending judgments. I think sometimes I see by faith the Lord lifted high up upon his throne and his train filling the temple with his glory, holding the balance of this nation in his hand, and that he can still turn the balance to mercy or judgment as it seems good to him. While it is so, there is still time for intercession, still time for mediation with God. And secondly, I say, and do take it as you see good, but I will tell you my belief, that if there is not a submission to the calls of God for this nation, then we will as certainly perish as if we were in these groups mentioned by Scripture. So when is a nation so filled with sin that it has pushed God's hand against it with no hope of mercy? First, a land is so filled with sin when all sorts of provocative sins abound in it, when there are no exceptions to be placed on the judgment, when there is no provocative sin that can be thought missing from the nation. For if there is but one provoking sin absolutely excluded, there is room for mercy to dwell, perhaps. Who will now plead for England? Who will put an exception for England into this judgment? Oh, poor England! Among all your lovers, you have no one to plead for you this day. From the height of profaneness and atheism, through the filthiness of sensuality and uncleanness, down to the lowest oppression and cheating, the land is filled with all sorts of sin. If there is any that can give us an exception as to any provocative sin that is not among us, let them stand up and plead the cause of this nation. I profess my mouth is stopped. The land is filled with sin against the Holy One of Israel. It is to no purpose to list all of our sins. The roll is too long to be read at this time. And I am sorry, but when men tried, it was cut and thrown into the fire, condemned and despised, as Jeremiah's was by Jehoiakim. But so it is. A land is so filled with sin against the Holy One of Israel, when all kinds of people in a land are guilty of provocative sins. I pray you don't misunderstand me. I do not say every single person. God forbid. If it had been so, then we would have long ago fallen like Sodom and Gomorrah. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a small remnant, we should have been as Sodom, and we should have been like Gomorrah. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 9. But where there are many sorts of persons, rulers and them that are ruled, the high and the low, the rich and the poor, those in court, those in the city, those in the country, I say all classes of persons are guilty of these provocative sins. We and our princes, as Daniel speaks, and our rulers, and the people, the inhabitants of the land of all sorts. Who will plead here for England? Who can bring out a person who will show us innocence? No, we are not innocent in the throne. No, it is not so at court. No, it is not so among the clergy. No, we are not innocent in the cities. No, it is not so in the country. It is not so with the rich. It is not so with the poor. Let anyone that can bring in a plea for this poor nation, that we may not conclude the land is filled with sin against the Holy One of Israel. But you will say, Here lies an exception. There are many people, many churches, free from these outlandish and provocative sins. There are groups of people, churches and preachers, who walk in the fear of God, 
they are free from all these sins, and therefore it does not extend to all sorts. Brothers, you know my mind on this matter. I have been pushing it for these last three years on all occasions. I acknowledge the churches in this nation are not guilty of those sins which God provoked against the nation to bring on national judgments. But I do say that churches and preachers in this nation are guilty of those sins for which Christ will bring correcting judgments upon churches and preachers, so that we are all headed in the same direction, top and bottom, though not all upon the same amount. The land is filled with sin. How are your thoughts concerning these things, brothers? I confess to you, I speak my heart, my conscience, as in the presence of God. I have given you two pieces of evidence that this land is so filled with sin against the Holy One of Israel. Let me give you two more. When the sins of a land have upon them the greatest aggravations that national sins are capable of, what are they? They are plain. Sins that go against warnings and against mercies. All sorts of sins and all sorts of persons, against all sorts of warnings and against all sorts of mercies. God has not left this land without warnings in heaven above and in earth beneath. Wasn't there a warning given to us in that wasting, desolating plague? Wasn't there a warning in the consuming, raging fire? Wasn't there a warning in that bloody war? Haven't there been mighty signs from heaven? I confess there has been, I fear, a lack in one kind of warning, the public preaching of warning from God's word. But God has not left himself without witness. He has multiplied warnings, and they have not been submitted to, have they, brothers? Were they at all afraid, says Jeremiah, when the roll was read? Or did they tear their clothes? Jeremiah chapter 36, verse 24. No, not at all. Have these warnings of God been submitted to? Has the voice of God in them been heard? Has the nation been afraid? Have they torn their clothes and returned to the Lord? They have not. We continue, God help us, in a state of sin against his warnings. And as for mercies, the mercies of peace and plenty have been the food of our lust. They have fueled covetousness and sensuality. Our plenty has pampered us in open sensuality, which has led to us destroying each other. When Israel was going to be destroyed by the Assyrian, and Israel saw their condition, they sent to the king of Assyria, and submitted themselves to the king of Assyria by whom they were to be destroyed. See Hosea chapter 5 verse 13. When Judah saw his sickness, all his inclinations and applications went to the Babylonians and Chaldeans, by whom he was about to be destroyed. The prophet Ezekiel has a whole chapter to tell you of the fondness of that people upon the Babylonians before their destruction. See Ezekiel chapter 23. Every Babylonian was like a prince and a mighty man, and you were in love with them and committed adultery with them. That is, you complied with their idolatry. When it is like this, it is evident that God is greatly withdrawn from such a people, and that they are near their desolation. What case can we make for England? What about our Catholic neighbor the French? We follow their manners, imitate their customs, borrow their fashion, promote their interests, advance their reputation. But don't we also live in fear and speak of how the French wish to destroy us? This is an eminent token of the hand of God upon us a sign that the land is so filled with sin against the Holy One of Israel. No, go even further, where is it? For we bear ourselves here not only upon the truth of the thing itself, but also upon the proclamation inviting us upon this day. Where is it that we fear the judgments of God? Where do we fear desolation, confusion, destruction upon this nation? 
to our religion, to our liberties, to our lives. Don't we fear we will be destroyed by the Pope and Catholic Church? It has been stated by our leaders and thought by anyone paying attention. And had we been wise, we might have seen this coming many years ago. But what have we been doing for some time? Abandoning our principles, forsaking the foundation we stood upon against the papacy, surrendering those avowed principles of the first reformers, pleading for submission, pleading for a possibility of reconciliation with the Catholic Church even. We have even begun to recommend them to be a part of the true church. And if the power of the Protestant religion had not been preserved in the body of the people, it would have long ago been given up to the papal interests by its leaders. I have given you this evidence that this land of ours is so filled with sin against the Holy One of Israel. And if you can answer this idea and disprove it, no man will rejoice more than myself. I pray that I have shown that I don't say this to say we are hopeless and the decree of destruction has already fallen on us. I have given these evidences only to prove that we are in the state and condition where there is no certainty or indication from providence that we should feel secure or safe, but that we are absolutely in the hands of sovereign grace and mercy. And without relief from providence, I will only say what the prophet says, Isaiah chapter 34, verse 16. Find the book of the Lord and read. Not one of these things will fail. Let me proceed to the second part, which is to give evidence that England is not yet completely forsaken by the Lord its God, the Lord of hosts, even though the land is so filled with sin. For there is encouragement in that we can still go and submit ourselves to God. And in truth, I will tell you the best I can think of. One, the large and wonderful discovery of the horrible plot, of the horrible popish plot, which would have led to ruin, destruction, and desolation of the nation. This is evidence that England is not yet, I say, completely forsaken by the Lord its God. It was not discovered by our rulers, from whom it was hidden. It was not discovered by the severe investigations and watchfulness of ministers of state from foreign intelligence intercepted, the usual way of discovering such plots. It was not discovered by persons of authority whose job it is to discover such plots. It was not so in a time when the nation was alert and looked for them and were zealous about such things. But while we were in the deepest sense of security, this plot was then discovered. All the attempts of hell and men were made to cover it up. Yet, through the conduct of the holy providence of God, it was all exposed, and it was publicly proclaimed to all the nation. I say, like the wife of Manoah, if God would have destroyed us, he would not have shown us this thing. If he had completely left us, he would have left us to have been swallowed up. To me, I say, it is evidence that England is not yet completely abandoned. Two, that God stirred up some of the nobles and our rulers to follow through on this discovery, and to bring it to light, and to pursue them to punishment who were the instigators, authors, and creators of the evil work. I will not speak one word or syllable to their dishonor or disrespect who deserve both honor and respect from us. But this I will say, that if I know them, or anything of them, this is not from themselves. This is from the clothing of the Spirit of God, and anointing to this very work, and is not from themselves, nor their own principles, nor their own inclinations, but the hand of God in them and upon them. Add here the strange and wonderful quiet attitude of the leadership of this city to follow through on the work as prudent, diligent, and watchful men. We have reason to pray for and bless God for this. 
and it is strengthened by the stirring up of a spirit in the common people for an unheard of passion and earnestness in bearing witness and testimony against popery and all their abominations, in such a manner as has not fallen on any nation under heaven. And this went above and beyond their spirits and principles. These things, to me, are some evidence that England is not yet completely abandoned by the Lord its God, even if the land is full of sin. 3. I could point out the danger from examples of our relationships with foreign nations abroad. At this time, they are all quiet. But who doesn't know that they all stand as if they were on the tiptoe, looking for who will first begin to cut throats and kill men? All the nations in Europe are in this pose to this day. Though they are quiet in this cold weather, yet, who will begin first, who will make the attack, and who will defend, is the talk of all Europe. 4. It is an evidence that England is not yet completely forsaken, in that a secret, powerful influence of divine providence has preserved the government of the nation in its union. When all the ligaments of law and mutual trust have broken down, there has been such a dissolution of mutual trust and all ordinary ligaments of the politic union of a nation, that if God had not powerfully grasped the whole in his hand, we would long since have been thrown into confusion and every man's sword would have been in the side of his brother. But to this day we are preserved in peace by a secret, influential power of divine wisdom and providence. What is even more excellent is that it is not visible by outward force, but merely his influence upon the minds of men. This is, to me, another evidence that England is not yet forsaken of its God, the Lord of hosts. 5. My last is this, that after God has, by so many ways and so many means, declared to us his displeasure against our sin, yet he has visibly granted a stay of judgment. The sentence will not be put in execution, says God, while I give this people a time and space and season of repentance and reformation. Oh, if God had utterly abandoned us, he would have wiped us out in the middle of our security. Evil would have risen, and we should have known after it was too late. Destruction would presently have overtaken us, But now God has given us various calls, various warnings, and leaves us a space, as yet, to see what we will do and what will become of us. I will give them a trial, says God. The decree will not yet go out. Judgment will not yet bring them to execution. I will give them space for repentance. And this thought has evidence in this blessed space and season God has given us. Now it's up to us to apply ourselves to his call, and to remove his judgments that are impending over us. For he has reserved a remnant among us that make use of this space and season to apply themselves to the throne of grace, and to cry mightily for mercy. God has not taken his Holy Spirit from us. God has not said, by any open work or secret declaration of providence, Pray no more for these people. My heart will not be toward them. He has not said so. And therefore, There are yet among us precious souls who do lift up prayers to God night and day, not only for themselves and families, not only for the church of God, but for this poor homeland of ours, that if it were the will of God, we may not see it soaked in blood, that God would not come down to destroy it with a curse, that God would pity and spare and have mercy upon it still, that he would not make it a field of blood. There are many crying to God to show mercy. There was an invitation and encouragement given to the whole nation to join together in their cries to God this day to ask him for mercy. I confess to you, give me leave to speak of it, I am afraid most of the nation, considering their conduct in this kind of prayer, will not do much for it. 
their prayers will not be considered worth much weight in averting our judgment. And I am afraid also that the approaching carnival or time of feasting will quickly blot out all impressions that should be in the minds of men from such a day as this is. This is all I can say. God is publicly acknowledged. And I don't know what influence that may have in a further suspension of judgment till the nation is better prepared to seek him. I think these are evidences, to me they are, that England is not yet completely abandoned by the Lord its God. The miraculous discovery of the plot for our destruction, the investigation of it by some of our rulers and the body of the nation, the engagement of foreign nations in their own concerns, the preservation of the political interest and nation when all the ligaments of law and love and trust were dissolved, and the current space and season that God gives us that we have not immediately been thrown into blood and confusion, attended with a spirit of prayer in some of God's own people and with a public acknowledgement of God in this day in the nation. Lastly, I will now proceed to the end, to show you what is required of us so that we may turn away the wrath and displeasure of God from this poor land and nation. 1. That whatever language God uses to call to the land, unless there is a general compliance with it, this land cannot be saved. 2. I should have shown you that all the diligence and the courage and the watchfulness of the rulers will not be able to preserve us from that destruction which we deserve, unless something else is done soon. Their hearts will faint, and their hands will fail, and their thoughts will be divided, for the leaders cannot do it alone. 3. Prayer will not do in this case. Although that is necessary and required, it will not do it alone. God does not cry to us merely that we should cry to him. Why do you cry? said God to Joshua. There is an accursed thing. Why do you lie upon your face and cry and pray when judgment is coming upon you? There is an accursed thing among you and so it is with us. 4. To speak very plainly in a simple way, the state of this nation is so bad that even our pleas to him, if we do not show repentance and universal reformation sincerely attempted, England cannot be saved. It will not be saved. God will forsake it, and destruction from the Lord will overtake us. 5. I should tell you what I judge as necessary if any such reformation will be obtained in this nation that there be, through the providence of God, provided another means of the word going throughout the nation than at present there is. It is the only means of conviction and conversion to God. Signs and wonders and judgments terrify. But it is the word that must reform and turn to God. And if the state of things continues as it is, there are some who are able and wise for the work, but are forbidden from it. And others that give all of themselves but are either unable or negligent to spread the word. When the word is treated this way, then I have no great hopes of seeing reformation in the land. Unless the rulers become better men who are better suited to their jobs than they currently are, a reformation will not be carried through this nation. And, most importantly, those who have been examples in sinning and in drawing others to sin must become examples in repenting and reforming and turning to God. Lastly, that the whole nation must become passionately stirred up and not faint in the pursuit of what is right. I have scarcely been able to speak even the beginnings of these matters to you. I wish I had strength to speak all that is in my thoughts and heart upon this situation to this whole nation. For on this, and not on anything else, the deliverance and safety of this land depends.
One of the funniest things to me about this sermon, it is not like, ha it's a funny sermon, but just, it's funny to me because the way John Owen describes the United Kingdom, the way he's describing England at that time, he is so disappointed. Uh, he has this line where he's like, can you think of any sin that we're not doing? You can't? Well, that means we're in trouble. Yeah, so many people, I think, would look at what, I mean, England in the 1600s, you know, this is when the Puritans are alive. This is when people like John Owen are alive, John Bunyan are alive. They would look at that as like the high watermark in some ways for Christian England. Maybe that in the late 1800s, right? When when uh, you have all these other great people, you would not look at this as an era of wanton sin, of just reckless evil everywhere, especially if you compare it to the lives we're all living in now, right? We would say, no, modernity is much more uh, full of reckless sin than that own era. You know, if you almost imagine if John Owen could come back to life and see what happened, he'd, he'd have a heart attack all over again, right? It just It's just so interesting to see his perspective. And yet I think his principles and his ideas of what he's saying, what a, what a nation needs, what people need, uh, is still very much true. And, and that we so often live so carelessly, so uh, un, even hardly thinking about the fact that kingdoms have come and gone for centuries. God is, you know, who, who's worried about the Babylonians today? Who's worried about the Persians or the Assyrians or, you know, any of these great empires that at one point, just the name of that empire would strike fear into everyone that heard it. And now it, it's nothing to us, yet God has been there all along, raising up and bringing down. And I think that that idea that we are all just one part of that is what history helps to do. It humbles us. It makes us realize that our lot is not all that long. What what John Owen saw as Christianity at its worst and the English at their worst, in some ways, we look back at it and go, wow, that was Christianity and in so, sometimes, in some ways, at our best. And if they could see what it's like today. And now and it really, I think, puts it in perspective what we're going through. Uh, and I also think it just reminds us that, man, we, we live in just a small piece, a small bubble of this very large story. Um, and I, I just think the story is very interesting. The sermon itself is also just, just interesting with that perspective in mind. <laughs> Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revived Thoughts. Today's sermon was narrated by David K. Martin. David K. Martin is an audiobook narrator. You can see more of his work at davidkmartin.net. If you want to hear more of that David K. Martin voice, you can check out a book that was recently published called Souls, How Jesus Saves Sinners by Matthew Everhard. Now, if you listen to the sermon, you thought, hey, you know what I want to know? I want to know more about that London fire of 1666. We highly encourage you to go sign up on Patreon and go listen to the new deep dive. That is out on the London fire of 1666. Now, if you're thinking this is one episode on a long fire, you are correct. But that fire lasted like a month and even longer. And to be fair, to, well, it was about a week. But anyway, it was a very long fire. And it tells you way more than just a fire. You get tons of other aspects, tons of stories, everything from a Catholic conspiracy involving the king all the way back to the Black Plague, wars, everything you could possibly want to know. Uh, it is a wild story, and we encourage you to go listen to it. It teaches you a lot, and I think it has a lot of relevancy for what we live through today. So highly encourage you to go over to our yeah. Patreon and sign up, and you can get access to that. You'll get access to... Uh, all the Ethiopia deep dives, you get access to the Joan of Arc, you get access to the First Crusade, and you get access to our Salem with Trials episodes. All of those hours mm. and hours of great church history content at your fingertips. And an, an, an ad-free ad feed, free, yeah. And an ad-free feed. Uh, and you get a little something from Joel and I as well. So you get all those things if you sign up for us, sign up with us at Patreon. And, you know, it takes a lot of work to make these episodes. It takes a lot of work to find 
uh, sermons from 400 years ago and edit them, get audio people to put them together for us. And uh, it really helps us out when you support us in that way. This is Troy and Joel, and this is Revive Thoughts. Revive Thoughts.